If you would take your scriptures, turn with me to John 14, the Gospel of John, chapter 14. We'll be reading verses 1 through 31. I don't think that's right either. It's through 24, verses 14, chapter 14, 1 through 24. Please give your attention to the reading of God's Word. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, Show us the Father? Do you believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me, for the sake of the works themselves. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. A little while longer, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live, you will also, you live also. At that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Father, you have told us to flee evil and pursue righteousness. You have instructed us to not have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because they produce only quarrels. You have shown us that your servant do not quarrel, but instead are kind, loving, ready to teach, and never resentful. You have told us, as your servants, to be gentle with those who oppose us, 
and to pray that your grace will work in their hearts and grant them repentance, bringing them to the knowledge of the truth. Open your word to us this day to help us grow in the strength and ability we need to be all these things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come this morning to this, the table of our Lord, to celebrate communion, we do so with joy in our hearts as well as praise on our lips. Now, I have taught often on the elements of this table and on the works of our Lord in preparing the grace it represents. We need to be reminded about these things often so we don't forget and fail to accept this table with the right attitude. One of the things we need to really look at carefully in regard to this supper is the glory of God along with the glory of Christ. We can make a good start at understanding this by focusing on the glory of the Father and the Son as it's given to us in the Scripture. However, divine glory is so far above us that the best we can get is a fog-shrouded picture of it. What we find is that this glory is revealed in the Scripture and in this Supper and is the main object of our faith, love, joy, and admiration. It is important that you recognize that you cannot fully, in your human frame, understand the real depths of God's glory. Why is that? Because his glory is so far beyond our ability to comprehend and his praise, true praise, is so far beyond our lips. However, with a prepared mind and heart, we can conceive some of his glory, but compared to the true depths of his glory, we can express none of it. I'm following John Owen in this idea of the glory of our Lord as is presented in Jason Ross' book, The Glory of Christ. Mr. Owen shows the guide to this glory can be found through Scripture and through Scripture alone. We find that far too many have left the only true guide seeking to be wise beyond what has been written. They want to raise their thoughts by their own will and imagination to replace Scripture. The Lord asked in Job 38.2. Now, you remember Job. Job had the children, and he had all the things you could have wanted in life at his, that time. And Satan came to God and challenged God that Job would just falter if he took everything away from him. So God said, do it. Job didn't falter. You also remember some of his friends came to minister to him. They wanted to uplift him, wound up being more of a... a, a disgruntled bunch than true comforters. So God came and he said in Job 38.2, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? These people came forth speaking words they didn't really understand. Job in Job 42.3 responds to God. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. He said, I'm going to put my hand over my mouth and I'm going to shut up. The meaning here 
is that the counsel of our words have no substance or spiritual food of faith in them. You must understand to really see Christ, to really see his glory as it is in this world, has to come forth through faith in the divine revelation. No matter how weak the knowledge of God is in our minds, it is much better than all other wisdom or knowledge we gain from any other source. The Apostle Paul says the same thing in Philippians 3.8. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. The revelation of Christ in the gospel and this supper is far more wonderful, glorious, and more filled with divine wisdom and goodness than even all of creation. If we didn't have this knowledge and glory, there'd be absolutely no light, only darkness and confusion in this world. The understanding of God's glory requires of us critical thinking, deep meditations, and great diligence in study of God's word. Our future blessing will depend on our being with Christ and the Father in heaven, beholding this great divine glory. Isn't that wonderful? We're going to be in heaven where we can bask in that glory. What better training can we have for beholding such glory than to come to this table, this table that was given as us as a representative of the glory of our Lord. In this supper, we see the great works of the triune God. God the Father had a plan, a plan to create a world to men, to place before them a test to see if they really would be obedient. He told them if they obeyed, they would live in a beautiful garden and have fellowship with him for eternity. But if they failed, they would surely die. As you know, man failed bringing upon all men the curse of death, separation from God. So the second part of God's plan was unfolded. It was unfolded in the sending of his son into this world to do for everyone who would place their hope and trust in him and in him alone redemption from this curse of death. They would be restored to eternal life and fellowship with their God. The third part of this divine plan was the Son giving his life in the place of his people, returning to the Father, and the Father and Son sending forth the Holy Spirit into the world to guide and direct his people in living their life for the Lord. If you will study this supper, you will learn about the glory of your Lord. Let's look at this supper and see what the wonderful indwelling glory of Christ in our lives We'll observe God's continuing with his son. We'll see when Jesus was glorified. We will hear Christ's promise to love believers. These are all foundational principles that help to unfold for you the depth of the glory of your Lord. We open with verse 18. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. What Jesus is explaining here is that his departure will not be like a father who dies and leaves his children orphans. He says he will come back. He will come back, but he will come back in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes into the heart to reveal Christ. 
He comes to glorify Christ for all he did to save your soul, which is shown on this table. He comes to apply Christ's merits to believers' hearts. He comes to make Christ's teaching effective in their lives. What you should know is when the Spirit is given, that is when Christ truly returns, and this return gives us a brief glimpse of Christ's glory. What do we learn from these words, I will come to you? We learn about more about the divinity of our Lord. In these words, we learn of the worth of our Lord. He speaks as though he were continually coming closer to the ones he loves. Christ is ever-present, yet he comes. Now, you have probably heard part of this is coming from a previous sermon that we did uh, on the verses just prior to this. The preceding verses showed the Creator had always been present in his universe, but he also came in each creative act. The lawgiver. The lawgiver had always been present with with, with uh, his church in the wilderness. But he came down on Sinai in all of his glory. The deliverer was always present at the side of the shepherd king. But in answer to his cry for help, he came down riding upon a cherub, flying on the wings of the wind. The Holy Spirit had been in the world since the first prayer was lifted before the eternal throne and inspired speech was opened. But as Christ returned to heaven, the Spirit came down to sit in flame on every bowed head. What we learn in these words is that this refers to the outpouring of the Spirit. That is also true of the immediate following context. There would be no other way to show the disciples were not left orphans. We understand at the close of the age, Jesus will return. He will return in bodily form to the world and to the church. Jesus tells his disciples in verse 19, A little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. He says a little while longer. In other words, the world will see him until his crucifixion and burial. And then they will see him no longer. But after his resurrection, believers will still be able to see him by faith. They will be able to see him by faith because he lives. And because of that same faith, they will be able to see him in their hearts because they live. Why will they be able to live? They'll be able to live because he lives. You cannot be a Christian unless you have first believed on Jesus Christ and what he has done. This table shows you everything, everything he did to make your spiritual life possible. This table, because of this wonderful promise of God to those who believe, is covered with the glory of Christ. In this, we see the work of both the Father and the Son. The Father sent the Son and continues with him in all he does. Therefore, you see both the glory of the Father and the glory of the Son. Jesus comes to the place in this world where we can clearly see his glory. He has shown his place with his disciples. In verse 20, he says, At that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. 
this evil world thought they had seen enough of Christ. They didn't want to see any more of him. Thus at his trial they cried out, Away with him, crucify him. This, thus their doom was sealed. They have gotten exactly what they wanted, to never see him again. What about you? What about you? Have you committed this sin? Have you come to the point because of something going on in your life that you wanted to say, I don't want to listen to Christ. I don't want to see Christ. Well, if you have, you can deal with that sin. You can repent. You can confess what you've done and repent and turn from it. We all have that tendency at times to want to ignore what God has told us, don't we? I want to do something so bad, I'm going to do it no matter what anybody says. You all know that feeling. We need to deal with it. We deal with it by confession and by repentance. Only those who have a heart of flesh and an eye of faith will see him sitting at the right hand of the Father and they will see him forever. The world will not see him again until the second coming and then they will cry out to the mountains to fall on them and hide them from his glory. He said in verse 19, because I live, you will live also. The disciples were distressed over the fact that Jesus must, said he must die in order to complete the work the Father gave him to do. They didn't like that. Peter rebuked Christ and said, no, you must not die. And then you remember Thomas, and Thomas said when Jesus was, went, was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, that they should go along with him and die with him because they thought the Jews would surely kill him. Christ said no to them. His death was his alone to give. He knew that even though he faced death, he would live. He told them, I will live, and because I live, you will live also. Here's the greatness of his glory. It shines forth, but it is only the beginning. And we cannot imagine what more can come. This table shows us only a brief glimpse of what is coming. In Isaiah 64, 4, God said, and Paul repeated in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, I has not seen nor ear heard nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. This is the hidden glory that we cannot fathom without help. In 1 Corinthians 2.10, God says he is revealing these things to us through the Holy Spirit. The world lives in absolute spiritual darkness. But the one who lives by faith is beginning to know the grace and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. How is it possible they can know? They can know because Jesus came back at Pentecost and filled them with his spirit. Christ is here living in the hearts of all who place their hope and trust in him and in him alone. He lives in the hearts of those with faith. If you really stop as you approach this table this morning and reflect on its true meaning, you will be given a brief view of the glory of Christ. What you as a believer must come to understand is that your life is bound up in the life of Jesus Christ for as sure and as long as he lives. Everyone who lives by faith and are united to him will live eternally. 
Matthew Henry says, they will live spiritually a divine life in communion with God. This life is hid with Christ. He's the vine. And if the vine lives, the branches live also. They will live eternally. They shall rise bodily in the merits of their Lord and his resurrection. Now again, Matthew Henry says, It will be well with them in the world to come. It cannot but be well with all who are his. Again, we're able to see the rays of his glory. Jesus tells his disciples they shall have the assurance of all of this, as verse 20 says, at that day. When I am glorified, when the Spirit is poured out, you shall know without a doubt that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. At this last day, you will know in heaven all of these glorious mysteries. It will be then, it will be then, he says, that I shall receive you into heaven to live eternally in the glory of God. Wow. At that point, you will know perfectly that which now you see only through a glass darkly. Believers come no more after the Spirit was poured out At that time, divine light shone and their eyes were opened. They are able to to see more clearly, to know more openly, and their minds were filled with more and more with his truth. From this, they have learned of Christ, that I am in my Father. They know Christ is in the Father and that this is what makes their union with God a strong fellowship with both the Father and the Son. Because Christ is in them. By the Spirit, studied believers know that Christ abides in them and abides in them forever. 1 John 3.24 Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Look at this table. Consider the glory that is depicted in this supper. It shows you that you're in Christ, and it is mutual. Christ is also in you. This clearly speaks of an intimate and inseparable fellowship based on the merits of him living in you and you living in him. Union with Christ is the life of the believer, and their relationship to him and to God through him is their joy and gladness. Such joy and gladness brings a desire for more knowledge, and that leads to a deeper satisfaction that they are now in Christ Jesus and he in them forever. This is an act of grace, grace that they know and understand and find comfort in. William Hendrickson says, so close is the relationship between Christ and believers that while he is the vine, they are the vine branches. He is the shepherd, they are the sheep. They are the members of the body of which he is the head. In Revelation 3.21, we see the closeness and tenderness of the relationship between Christ and believers. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Here's where the glory is hidden. Dr. Henderson shows that this relationship is a reflection of the everlasting, the ontological union between Father and Son. 
Now, I think we all know men are social creatures. In other words, we need each other. We're dependent on others to validate our lives. This was not a mistake of evolution. It was a mandate from God. Jesus knows our nature very well because he created us. Understanding and knowing us as he does, he makes us a great promise. He promises to love us and to manifest himself to us. 2 Peter 3.21 He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Who are those that love Jesus? It's those who have his commandments and keep those commandments. Christ shows that the commands he gives his disciples were intended not just for living in the days of Paul, but also for those that would hear and believe through the teaching of his disciples. Here we see the grace of God in the giving of these commandments alongside of human responsibility, the keeping of those commandments. Having been given Christ's commands, we must keep them. We do this as Christians in name and profession. Matthew Henry says, we have them sounding in our ears, written before our eyes. We have the knowledge of them, but this is not enough. Would we approve ourselves Christians indeed? We must keep them. We cannot just have them in our heads. We must have them in our hearts and in our lives. So what's the promise? He will pour out his love on us. We will have the love of the Father and the Son. Understand this very important truth. We could never love God if he did not first love us. It's out of his goodwill that we by grace are given the strength to love him. There is this wonderful love of complacency that is promised to all who love God. Proverbs 8, 17. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently will find me. God loves those who love him, and he lets them know he loves them. He smiles upon them and embraces them. Mr. Henry says, God so loves the Son as to love all those that love him. Believers shall have Christ's love, God says, and I will love him as the God-man and mediator. Do you understand? God will love you, the believer, as a father, and Christ will love you as your elder brother. You will be loved by your creator, and he will be your joy and hope. You will be loved by your redeemer, and he will protect you from evil. It should be evident to you that through this, that nothing shines brighter than this. God is love. The truth that God is love and that he loves you are crowns of glory and comfort. They are grace and glory which shall be for all who love the Lord Jesus Christ in all sincerity. In revealing of the Christ, nothing shows forth his glory more than he loves you. Here before you on this table. Here's the picture of all Christ did for you. All those who believe on him and love him with all their heart. It is here. You can begin to catch a glimpse of the glory 
that he is shrouded in. What do we see happen as Jesus makes this great promise to affect this world forever? Look at verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Who interrupts him with this question? Judas, who is also called Labias or Thaddeus. He was one of the twelve. John makes sure everyone knows which Judas this is. It's not Judas Iscariot, the traitor. Why would Judas ask this question? There are two main reasons I found as to Judas's question. One, he wants to know why Jesus is saying he will manifest himself to all of his glory only to them and make a display of it to the whole, not make a display of it to the whole world. Now this most likely came because of Judas and the other disciples' ignorance at this time of what Christ's real mission was. They still think. He will make a show of his power and take over the leadership of Israel and defeat the Romans. That's what the Jews wanted. That's what they saw as a Messiah. They expect that he will become king and the Gentiles will come to the light and kings to the brightness of his rising. This is still very much a real problem in the church today. Too many people mistake what the true role is for Christ's kingdom. They want his kingdom to be of this world, which it will never be. Another aspect of this question Judas asked, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Judas could be thinking here of the positive position this gives to the apostles that they should be the only ones to receive such blessed news. He's amazed at the condescension of such divine grace. He may be thinking, what is there in us to deserve such great favor? This would be as misplaced as the other idea. The answer is found in Christ who manifests himself to his disciples once and in a very distinguished way. He showed himself to them and not to the world that sits in darkness. He came to the base, to those without a lot of material blessings and not to the rich, noble, and powerful. He reveals himself to the babes of this world and not to the wise and prudent. He gives himself to you this morning in the preaching of his word and in this sacrament showing all he has done in his love for you. So hear his word. Apply his commands to your life. Jesus now answers Judas. Verse 23. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He overlooks the error of Judas' questioning and moves right to the correct answer. He begins with an explanation of the promise. The promise concerning your loving him and keeping his commandments. The purpose here was to ensure you understood the inseparable connection between love and obedience. When you have a sincere love for Christ in your heart, you will also have obedience to his commandments. If you love Christ, that love becomes a directing principle, a principle that guides you into a life of obedience. Verse 24. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the words which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. You can see, where there is no love of Christ, 
There's no desire to obey him. What do those who have no love for the Lord but claim to follow him do when confronted with his word? They try to justify their own wants and desires and cut off any who disagree with them. They relegate God's word to a secondary source of wisdom and elevate their desires to the highest place. They show no love for Christ at all. Matthew Henry shows this is the reason why Christ would not make himself known to the world. They didn't love him. This is a great affront to him. They refuse to keep his commandments. So why? Why should he be familiar with them? Look at this table before you this morning. It's shrouded in the glory of your Lord. On this table, we see the Father's stamp upon our Lord and the work he did to accomplish our salvation. This is the message of the completed work shown through this supper. The word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Jesus came to do the works of the Father. To live the perfect life. The life required for all to enter heaven. He lived the life he, 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 to do the work of cleansing the soul of those chosen by the Father to be his and to love his only begotten Son. He lived the life to do the work of guiding you through the wicked and evil world by his resurrection and sending his Spirit into your heart. He did all of that for you. This explains the meaning of Christ manifesting himself to believers and magnifies his favor to all who hear his word and believe his promise. What we should learn from this passage and this supper is that the light of Christ and the love of God are communicated to believers in the light and love of the Redeemer. So wherever Christ is exalted, there is the image of the Father. The Father and the Son call you to themselves. That can never be voided. It is a relationship that will draw you ever closer to the perfect time in heaven. This table carries this message and opens God's glory in your heart. What I desire is that you will come to this table thinking on why you need this table. Then, as you take the elements, change your thinking to the one who made this table possible. And on the reward you will receive from your Lord as you leave this table. In that thought that comes as you depart, please remember the glory that came from the work of saving you and the glory manifested in carrying you through this life. That is glory that you can know, but take your thoughts further. And begin to focus on the glory that will be yours in heaven. As you do that, you will feel smaller. You will feel more insignificant. But that's all right. Take heart. Take heart that glory will come into focus as you enter heaven for eternity. Let us pray. Heavenly Father. We come to you this morning because we know it is you who will redeem our lives from the grave and you will take us to yourself. You have told us there is a time coming when the dead will hear the voice of your son 
and those who here will live. This table before us this morning is a testimony of all you have done for us. Please, open our hearts. Cleanse our souls as we come to partake of this wonderful supper of grace and mercy. Give us a strong desire to live as those who please you. Help us to show forth our faith and trust in your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.